you would turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 25, and let's begin by listening to our passage for today. Acts 16, verses 25 through 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Well, you've probably heard the expression, uh, the Christian is to be in the world, but not of the world. It's not in the Bible, but it's, it's true. In the world means that uh, you, you know the world, you engage unbelievers. You, well, we as a church aren't going to buy 50 acres of land in North Georgia and establish a commune, even if we didn't have to socially distance. We're to be in the world. We're not to depart and live away by ourselves. We're to know and to love and engage our neighbors. But it's also true that the Christian is not of the world. He stands out. She lives differently. You wear Christ's jersey wherever you go. You aren't ashamed of the gospel. You aren't ashamed to be known as a Christian. You aren't of the world. Well, in our passage, the Apostle Paul models what it looks like to be in the world but not of the world. And you should follow his example. Now, what is Acts? Well, Acts is a short history of the early church. It chronicles the spread of Christianity. It's a record of the gospel gone viral. And you all know what that means. Luke wrote Acts, right? The same man who penned the gospel that bears his name. This is Luke part two, Acts. 
Now, Acts begins with a band of confused disciples. They thought that Jesus would usher in uh, a, a earthly kingdom. Uh, they expected Rome to be kicked out and Jerusalem to be restored to all its glory like in the early days of Solomon, and that did not happen. Instead, the resurrected Savior, Jesus, tells these confused disciples that they are going to take the gospel to the nations. So, the gospel has gone from being a message in the Old Testament, as so many have said, a message of come and see. Come and see what God is doing in Israel. Come and see the temple. Come and see the people of God. Right? The gospel has gone from being a message of come and see under the Old Covenant to now a message of go and tell in the New Covenant. Go to the nations and tell people that Jesus is alive. Go and tell people in America and people in Russia and Australia. Go everywhere and tell from come and see to go and tell. And so the, the book of Acts is the, the story of go and, and tell. And we've already the past few years worked through intermittently the first 15 chapters of Acts. Our series was hijacked a few weeks ago because of the virus, but here we are, we're back. And we've seen the church grow from a few dozen to thousands upon thousands and sprinkled throughout this tidal wave of conversions that we read about generally in the book of Acts are several particular conversions. A beggar in Acts 3.8. A magician in Acts 8.24. A eunuch in Acts 8.37. A murderer in Acts 9.18. A paralytic in Acts 9.35. A corpse. Totally serious. A corpse in Acts 9.42. A centurion in Acts 10.44. A, a proconsul in Acts 13.12. A cripple in Acts 14.10, a businesswoman in Acts 16.15, a slave in Acts 16.18, and in our passage, a jailer. Now, I'm tempted to spend the next hour focused on the jailer. In many ways, I'd love to do that, but when you look at the passage I just read, you recognize that really the, really the one whose eyes we need, to, we need to put our eyes on is the Apostle Paul. Because in Acts 16, what we're witnessing is the dramatic spread of Christianity. But when you ask the question, how is it spreading? Well, the answer is it's spreading through a man who is radically committed to be in the world but not of the world. And that's what I want you to see today. Now, Paul plays four roles worthy of our attention, and these four roles are the outline of the message. First, a suffering saint. A suffering saint. Second, a good Samaritan, a good Samaritan. Third, a Christian citizen, a Christian citizen. And fourth, a church leader, a church leader. Now, may God use these words to help you be in the world but not of the world. All right, first, a suffering saint. Now, let's go back just a few verses. Paul is being followed in Acts 16 by a slave girl possessed by an evil spirit. She follows him around crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And eventually, Paul uh, commands this demon to leave her, and she is transformed. But this transformation means that she is no longer any good for her owners, plural, 
who used her as a fortune teller to line their pockets with gold and silver. Well, these owners in Philippi accuse Paul and his companion Silas of disturbing the peace, and as a result, the city magistrates, the city leaders, immediately punish Paul and Silas without a trial. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them, that's Paul and Silas, with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stock. So Paul and Silas have been beaten, they have been arrested, and they've been, the, the text makes it quite clear that they've been thrown quite literally into the deepest, darkest bowels of this Philippian prison. And here is their response. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, which is, of course, how you would respond if you were thrown into prison, right? Daniel tells us of three godly men. King Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to worship uh, images, his image, or die. Do you remember how they replied to King Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel 3, they said, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And here is Paul and Silas in their own fiery furnace. But like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they haven't given up. They trust God. They lift up their voices in prayer and in song. Now, we don't know, uh, you know, Luke isn't telling us what exactly they, they prayed and what exactly they sung. Undoubtedly, they, they knew the Psalms. Undoubtedly, they had memorized many of the Psalms. Right? Psalm 69, 32 the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. I wonder if that verse came to Paul's mind while he was in prison. Perhaps Psalm 140, verse 1, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart. Maybe they were crying out, singing psalms of deliverance. Or maybe Psalm 89, 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord, forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And so here is Paul withering away in a Philippian jail, surrounded by apparently some number of other prisoners who are listening to him, presumably singing of the steadfast love of the Lord, thinking to themselves, you are out of your mind. You're speaking of the steadfast love in the Lord. I mean, you can't even move an inch. And yet Paul and Silas don't care. They trust the Lord. They are glorifying Him in their prayers and in their music. They could have complained that life was not going their way. They could have complained that they were treated unfairly. They could have complained that they were hungry or cold or aching or bruised. They could have complained that God had abandoned them, that God doesn't care for them. How wealthy would we be if we had a dollar for every time we complained? I could, like, retire. 
to be in the world means you face trials, right? You suffer. Pain is real. Sometimes it's visible. You lose your job. You lose your memory. You lose a friend. And some of you, because of this pandemic, have lost community. Sometimes our trials are invisible. I'm thinking of loneliness, of anxiety, of depression, of despair. I think loneliness is the worst when you're surrounded by people. It's invisible. Christian, you are in the world, and that means you're going to face trials, but you are not of the world. And this means you face trials with confidence in the Lord, loud confidence in the Lord. I say loud because Paul and Silas were happy to be heard, right? Did you see how verse 25 ends? The prisoners were listening to them. These two poor beaten-up preachers of Jesus praying and singing out loud to God, and Paul and Silas don't seem to care. They want the world to know now more than ever right, that their confidence is in the Lord. So, it's one thing to design a building to withstand hurricane-like wind. Some of you are, are engineers or architects or builders. It's one thing to design a building that you know on paper is going to withhold, it's going to withstand you know, an incredible storm. But it's another thing to be that builder or that architect or that engineer who's waiting while the storm is, is raging, kind of waiting to make sure that all of your calculations hold true. Hey, it's, it's one thing to, as a Christian to prepare for trials, to prepare, to, to be in the Word, to be in prayer, to prepare for the day that trials come, and it's another thing entirely to live through them and to, to, to wonder, am I going to stand? Am I going to pray and sing hymns to God? So when, when trials come, when you lose what you love, will you pray and sing hymns to God? That's the first role that Paul plays in our passage. All right, second, second, a good Samaritan, a good Samaritan. Now, the good Samaritan, of course, is from Luke chapter 10. Uh, he's the only one who showed mercy and compassion to his enemy, whom Jesus refers to as his neighbor. Well, I want you to see how Paul shows mercy to the man who bound him in chains, the man in verse 24 who simply received the order. I don't care that these folks have been poorly treated. I'm just doing my job, right? He receives them, and he, he puts them in chains. And I want you to see how Paul showed mercy to that man. While Paul and Silas are singing, God sends an earthquake. The prison shakes. The, the doors open. The chains fall off, look at verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. I don't know how engineers prepare for that. Like, how do you prepare for an earthquake sent by God? Don't worry about that. Just keep reading. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. The jailer witnesses this. He's terrified. 
He'd be put to death for allowing these inmates to get free. And so he's about to commit suicide. Look at verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Paul, at this point, shows mercy. At this point, Paul, he keeps his head. He's thinking about what could happen to this jailer. He keeps his head, and he chooses to show mercy. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So the jailer had assumed the prisoners had escaped, which is, of course, the rational course of action, should you be imprisoned unjustly and God open the doors and, you know, take the shackles off your wrist, the, the natural reaction is, of course, oh, clearly God wants me out of here. So you gather, well, you don't have any belongings, but you just, you run as fast as you can. But no, they're still there, Paul says. They, they haven't run away. Now, did Paul convince everyone to stay in the unlocked prison for the sake of the jailer? I think so. Paul is playing the part of the Good Samaritan. He's, he's risking his life for the good of his neighbor. The jailer is flustered. He's witnessed an earthquake. The prison doors have flung open. And here is this wounded man. We know he's wounded because eventually the jailer is going to wash his wounds. He's bloodied. He's wounded. And he's standing with such confidence, you know, taking an interest in the man who just a few minutes ago was really his enemy. And the jailer, he doesn't know what to make of all this. He doesn't quite know what to do. I don't know what his worldview is with regards to God, but clearly he knows that he's in trouble. And so he asks a question. And the answer to that question that he asks is going to change his life for good. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in the house and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. All right, now what I want you to see is that Paul loved that jailer when he told him to put down his sword. That was an act of love. Put down your sword. You know, a dead jailer would make it even easier to escape from an already unlocked prison. God, uh, Paul loved the jailer enough to tell him to put down his sword. Right? I think that's obvious. But what I also want you to see is that Paul loved that jailer even better when he told him to pick up his cross and follow Christ. And that is clearly the conversation that took place when the jailer asked the question, not really even knowing fundamentally what he was asking. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul and Silas proceeded to unpack 
the word of the Lord, verse 32. And the jailer and his household believed their words. Now, maybe you're thinking that your evangelism would be more fruitful if all of your spiritual conversations were preceded by a divine earthquake. Actually, that's not true. Because miracles don't save. God's Word saves. In fact, the Holy Spirit, if you will, goes out of His way. Not that the Holy Spirit can ever truly go out of His way, but you know what I mean. The Holy Spirit goes out of His way to make sure that Luke records it wasn't some shock at the reality of a divine earthquake that led the believer to Jesus Christ. It was the fact that when presented with a very straightforward question, presumably about the jailer's physical safety, Paul and Silas made clear to give him the appropriate spiritual response telling him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then proceeding to unpack over time what exactly that meant so that the jailer and his entire household had sufficient knowledge of Jesus Christ to present themselves to baptism and to become additional members of the church in Philippi. The kindest thing Paul did for the jailer was to point him to Jesus. Good Samaritans point their neighbors to Jesus. The kindest thing you can ever do is open up God's Word and point people to Jesus. So to be in the world means you lean into and not away from your neighbors. To be in the world means that when God opens the prison doors and takes the shackles off of your wrist, and you see a man there in desperate need of Jesus Christ, your first response isn't to flee, but to think, oh, maybe God has a plan for his life that I need to address with him right now. That's what it means to be in the world, to have your eyes open and attuned to the people that God has placed in your life. You serve wherever you can, you serve however you can, and you always ultimately serve with a gospel motivation. Post-resurrection, that's what it means fundamentally to be a good Samaritan. To be not of the world means you care more for your neighbor's soul than you do for your neighbor's body. It means you aren't satisfied to secure someone's safety. No, you labor to secure their soul. Yes, it's God who finally secures the soul. But you have a heart for that because you're, you're in the world but not of the world. Plenty of individuals in the world are going to care for the physical well-being of others. Praise God for that. We call it common grace. The Christian is in the world caring for bodies, but not of the world, caring for souls. So many passages say we must not be of this world. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot fill the soul. Those, Jesus speaking particularly of persecutors of the disciples, I would lump into those viruses. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what it means to be not of the world. Jesus is calling us to have an eternal perspective. Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? 
How many people are so devastated when the stock market goes down because all of their heart and all of their blood and all of their sweat and all of their tears is in their accounts in the bank? What will it profit a man if he gains the entire world and forfeits his life? Jesus there isn't fundamentally talking about the physical body, his life. He's talking about his soul. Just what good is it to have everything that money could possibly buy and not have a robust, living, real relationship with Jesus Christ? What in the world are we here for? Social distancing, wearing masks while we sing, if not for the reality that Jesus Christ is far superior than anything money can buy. Think of, the, think of the man who came up to Peter begging in the early part of Acts, and Peter says, silver and gold I do not have. Peter healed his body, and I believe Peter followed up by preaching the gospel. A truly good Samaritan cares for the body and the soul. A good Samaritan will, sh will share the gospel of everlasting life. What should you do with this truth? You should build a culture of evangelism at Mount Vernon Baptist Church. A few years ago, I urged each of you, basically every time I stood behind the pulpit, to share the gospel naturally with the people that God has naturally put in your life. Regularly, once a week, I'd be praying, God, give me an opportunity this week to share the gospel. And with a sense of urgency, recognizing that it really matters, that people really are dying. And those who die without Christ have no hope. Share the gospel naturally with the people around you, regularly, every week if you can, certainly every day if you can, and with a sense of urgency. All right, don't presume upon tomorrow. And with so much unrest in the world, I don't know of a better time in my life to share the gospel than right now when our neighbors are quite literally worried about their lives and unsettled by the world around them. But here we are, praying to God and singing hymns, and you get to tell people why. Build a culture of evangelism at Mount Vernon. Invest in mercy ministries that open gospel doors. It's what we strive to do at Mount Vernon. Uh, when you, if you look at our, our church budget, if you go to the page there that talks about missions or you get a sending MVBC brochure, there are many line items in that budget that we would identify as mercy ministries, ministries that are intent upon perhaps saving the lives of the unborn, perhaps intent on feeding those who need food, serving the, the bodies of those who are of ill health. And one of the reasons that we identify and support these ministries is because they're ministries committed to serving the body and serving the soul. Invest in mercy ministries like that. And then lean into God's Word, recognizing that upon securing the jailer's life, Paul and Silas unpacked the Word of the Lord. I would challenge you to lean into God's Word. I have never I've been a Christian, it's difficult to remember now what exactly year it was. I think it was 1990. I've been a Christian for a long time. I have to admit in those early years, I'm not sure that I went to Sunday school much, but for the past few decades, I've been at church a lot, and I've been studying the Bible with other believers in Sunday school. I've just been sitting there and just like a little bird opening my mouth while teachers spoon feed the Bible to me. And it's just been great. Even today as a pastor, I so love to sit in a Sunday school class, and I'm already missing Evan and Dennis's uh, class in Exodus that was so brutally cut short by that nasty virus. And I was learning so much about Exodus because when I preached through Exodus, do you remember I did it in like 10 weeks? 
you know, like just overview and you guys are going into the, the particulars. And I've been so, I've benefited by that and I haven't had it for weeks now. And the question that I'm facing as a pastor is, what's it like for you? Like, don't get me wrong, I like my sermons, you know. I mean, I think they're, they're good, you know. I'm certainly aiming to be true. But I recognize that, like, over the years, our, our Christian diet is more than a kind of the, the central sermon. I don't want to take anything away from that, but we've gone seasons now without the kind of exploratory, inductive Bible study that we're used to as a church, without the kind of topical studies that we've grown accustomed to just kind of shoring up our Christian faith as we think about everything from how do you spend your money as a Christian to how do you deal with fear of man as a Christian? And we haven't had that for months. I don't know when we're going to have it. It's probably going to be weeks, maybe months before we have it again. And I just hope you guys are okay. You know, these things are, it's, it's frosting, if you will. This is the cake or, I don't know, it's gravy, if you will. This is the meat and potatoes. But I like that gravy and I like that frosting. And so I want to encourage you, if you've been sort of like taking a hiatus from deep Bible study, I just want to lovingly say, stop it. Like the Bible's in English and you can read. So take time to read the Bible carefully. You know, maybe it's time to, and I don't want to sound like rebukey, because I, I, I'm so encouraged by what I see going on in your, in your lives as we've been quarantined, but I want to say maybe that Sunday school hour is an hour you can reclaim to sit down and do some inductive Bible study on your own. We've got a First John series online that you could just download if you want a little bit of help. And maybe now more than ever, if you've never read a Christian book with another believer, maybe now's the time to get a recommendation for a good Christian book that's going to shore up your faith so that when someone comes into your life and says to you, and it happens, what must I do to be saved? You're not at a loss. So again, meat and potatoes, so glad to feed you the Word of God through this sermon, but lean into God's Word on your own. Right? Number three. Number three. Paul's role. We're thinking about Paul's roles on display in this passage. We see him as a suffering saint. Uh, we see him as a good Samaritan. And we also see him as a Christian citizen. Look at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. The magistrates, the same city officials who allowed the crowd to indict Paul and Silas, abuse them, the same city officials, government leaders who ordered Paul and Silas beaten and arrested and sequestered in the deepest, darkest part of the Philippian jail, these very same officials order the jailer to let Paul go free. Paul can go in peace. He's no longer a fugitive. Okay? What does Paul do? He hightails it out of there for Thessalonica. He won't go in peace. He demands his rights. 
He demands his rights as a Christian. He demands his rights as a Roman citizen. Look at verse 37. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No! Let them come themselves and take us out. Paul refused to go quietly. He demanded the magistrates to come to him if they wanted him to leave. And they did come, in fact. And they apologized. And only then did Paul leave the city. Verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Now, Paul's demand here, let's just admit, is unusual. We don't find many similar demands like this in the New Testament. I'm not sure, in fact, we find another demand quite like this. It's not that Paul hadn't been arrested numerous times. He's going to be arrested more. He's going to stand in front of government officials again and again and again. But here's a case where the government official actually said, go, and Paul responded, no. That is a bit unusual. Now, I'm used to Paul laying down his rights. The, the, the thought of the Apostle Paul laying down his rights, that's no surprise to me. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is very clear that he has the right to be paid for teaching the gospel to Christians. Right? The worker deserves his wages. Paul laid down his right for the sake of the witness, his witness in the church. He didn't want anyone to hold anything over him, and so he laid down his rights to his salary. So I'm accustomed to Paul laying down his, his rights. But here is Paul laying down, well, no. Here is Paul not laying down his rights. He's a Roman citizen. The Roman Empire had given him, as a Roman citizen, certain rights. Apparently, Paul was, was born into citizenship. Uh, you could buy yourself into citizenship in the Roman Empire. Paul did not do that. He was born. He was a full-fledged Roman citizen, we would say. And the Roman Empire, therefore, had given him certain rights. He had the right to a formal inquiry before he was punished. He had the right to a formal inquiry, right? He had the right to not be the victim of mob justice. He, had, he As a Roman citizen, he was exempt from what the Romans considered degrading forms of punishment. Right? He was exempt from that. He had the right to, if he was punished, the punishment could not be degrading. The Philippian magistrates appeared to have failed on both counts. And Paul is holding the government accountable for injustice. And Paul refuses to let the magistrates sweep injustice under the rug. The English commentator John Stott argued that this is an example, an early example of civil disobedience. Another commentator wrote that Paul is responsible for the first recorded sit-in. John Calvin said he was chiding the government. Chiding. I'm not sure exactly what chiding means, but that's what Paul did. And the question is why? Well, why did he do it? Why did he not lay down his rights? Why did he demand his rights? Well, it seems that Paul did it for the sake of the church. We know that Paul's heart is for the church, for the people of God, and Paul knew that he would be... Now, at this point, at this point, I'm giving you the reason that I think makes sense of the text. You need to look at, look at it for yourself. 
Paul knew he'd be leaving Philippi soon. The young church would be unprotected and associated with Paul, who is now considered a convict. Yes, a convict who's been released, but a convict nonetheless. And therefore, the young church may very well have been attacked, maligned for their association with Paul, the one who had, of course, spent the night in jail. And so by flexing his muscles as a Roman citizen, Paul potentially provided some political cover for this young church, for the moment at least. By demanding his rights, Paul promoted the gospel. He used his position as a Christian citizen of the Roman Empire for the good of the church. Paul appealed to the, listen carefully, Paul appealed to the ideals of the Roman Empire for the welfare of the Christian church. Paul appealed to the ideals of the Roman Empire for the welfare of the Christian church. To be in the world means to recognize that you are a member of a society, a government ordained by and accountable to God. To be in the world is to recognize that, to recognize that, yes, ultimately your citizenship is in heaven. Praise God for that. But your citizenship in a secondary but very real way is also right here. And as a Christian citizen in America, you recognize, as I prayed already, anticipating July 4th, that the government has been ordained by and accountable to God. And in America, where we are the government, you have a voice and you have a vote. You have a voice and you have a vote. And Paul would have you use both to the glory of God. To be not of the world, to be not in the world, but not of the world, in the world, member of society, voice, vote, but not of the world, means that social justice and governmental reform and political progress can never be your primary goal or your chief concern. You cannot believe that social, structural change will produce or bring about the kingdom of God. It means violent methods of social reform are out of step with Jesus, who said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Right? If Jesus' kingdom were of this world, his servants would have taken up arms and defended him as he's being pushed and pulled to the cross. We are living through a season of social upheaval. The expectation that the government will solve our problems has never been higher. I would say the confidence that the government can solve our problems has never been lower. That makes for an awfully difficult place to be. When the public consciousness is basically the government should solve our problems and our view of authority is so very low, it's very difficult, humanly speaking, for any good to come out of those two realities. We are witnessing civil unrest on our computer screens in response to the simmering question of race in America. We are watching as protesters raise their fist at the government and the Christian most of us are left kind of scratching our heads. How are we to be in the world to care and work for change in our society 
without being of the world, social justice warriors who care more about society than they care about the Savior. And I would say in God's providence in the first passage that I must address after COVID-19 obliterated my sermon series, that God's word provides us an example of how to be a Christian citizen, whomever you are. Paul is a model for believers. He calls upon government leaders to live up to the best ideals of the Roman Empire. He speaks up in the face of injustice, but he does so for the good of the church in mind. He's in the world, but he's not of the world. He is a Christian citizen of the Roman Empire, much like many of you, not all of you, but many of you are a Christian citizen of an American government. The church needs to have space for people who desire, like Paul, to call out injustice. The church needs to have space for people who desire, like Paul, to call out injustice. We as Christians have the right to call the government to live up to its ideals. We have the right to call upon the government to live up to its ideals. We speak out against Roe v. Wade because it is unjust to take a baby's life. We speak out against same-sex marriage because it's unrighteous to create a society that works against children being raised by a mom and a dad, male and female. We address racism because every human being is made in the Imago Dei and because our founders failed to live up to their own ideals that all men are created equal. It is not controversial to admit that our churches were largely silent during the ages of slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow. That's not controversial. It is not a sign of being woke to say, I'm sorry the church got this wrong for so long. It is not Marxist to affirm the possibility that racism lingers in ways that are hard to detect and impossible to avoid. And the question is, what do we do now? Recognizing that we have these extraordinary passages with apostles who are ambassadors for Christ, sticking their thumb at the Roman Empire. What do we do now? How do we live in the world but not of the world? I take you back. I, I, I needed some help here. I take you back to the 20th century theologian, Carl F.H. Henry, who thought so long and so hard about virtually everything, including this particular issue. I find it rather unusual that the two main mentors in my life, uh, human mentors, uh, Mark Hatfield, a senator, and Mark Dever, a pastor and theologian, were both personally highly influenced by Carl F.H. Henry. So I consider Carl F.H. Henry in one sense a spiritual grandfather. He reflected on these very verses in Acts chapter 16, and he summarizes here the role of the Christian citizen. I believe his words are timely. I apologize to you parents who are uh, so wonderfully sitting with your little children, but let me read you a passage from Carl F. H. Henry that I think is helpful. As God's servant, civil government must often be reminded that the justice and order it is mandated to preserve must provide the setting in which God's people may live to God's glory, right? The government needs to be reminded of its job. Keep the peace so that we can worship quietly. 
Henry continues, the Christian not only is free, as was Paul, to appeal for equal justice under the law, but is duty-bound also to live and strive for justice under the law. Christians are therefore in and through civil authority to work aggressively for the advancement of justice and human good to the limit of their individual competence and opportunity. Right? He says to the extent that you have competence, the, to the extent that you've got the ability to think through some of these issues, to the extent that you have time and opportunity. Right? Very difficult. Maybe you're at home watching three or four kids wondering, oh, Aaron, what in the world am I supposed to do in this area? Well, this older brother just says to the extent that you have competence and opportunity. How do we do it? My last sentence from Henry. This they do by providing critical illumination, personal example, and vocational leadership. Like Paul, you are a part of society. Like Paul, you have the right to appeal to the government to live up to its ideals. And to the extent that you have competence and opportunity, Henry says you can, do, you can provide three things. Number one, critical illumination. In other words, share where you think the problem lies. Share how the government or the people or the culture fails to live up to these ideals. You are not anti-gospel for addressing the government's failures any more than Paul was anti-gospel for addressing the failure of the Roman Empire to do justice by him. All I would ask, all I would ask as your pastor is that like Paul, you speak with the welfare of the church in mind. And this means speaking and writing with humility and charity. The moment you make your views public is the moment you should especially be willing to humbly listen to those who might disagree with you. Brothers and sisters in Christ in particular, do this well. Let us not be a congregation that uh, is warm in the main hall and fractured on Facebook. Critical illumination. Second, he says, personal example. Don't forget the role of your own character in the public debate. Live a life your neighbor should want to follow. The righteousness that you want on display in the world around you should be the righteousness that you display in your own life and in your own church. Paul was willing to suffer for the welfare of the church, so should we. The church, the church doesn't need political pundits. We need persons of grace and truth. Third, he said, vocational leadership. Your ability to affect change is limited. My ability is limited. And Paul knew this. Paul didn't stay in Philippi to reform the city. He had his say and he moved on. Some of you are called to lead, though to have a microphone, to be a voice of wisdom in a fallen world, and public service is a worthy career, be it as a police officer, a firefighter, a social worker, a lawyer, a judge, a legislator. Christians don't have to lead out. As you have competence and opportunity, you don't have to lead out. But where there is an opportunity, you can play a role. From this pulpit, I will speak as clearly as I can against injustice and wickedness in its clearest forms. 
I will follow Paul's example and say government that codifies, that is, makes legal, same-sex marriage is not living up to its ideals. I will say that a government that codifies abortion is not living up to its ideals. Had I been pastoring 60 years ago, I would have hoped that I would have said a government that codifies racism is not living up to its ideals. Brothers and sisters, we can talk politics as Christians. We can share ideas. We can discuss what it would look like for America to be better than it is today. As a nation, we will not always live up to our July 4th ideals. But by God's grace and for the good of the church, we should strive to be a faithful Christian citizen. So we've seen Paul this morning as a suffering saint. We've seen him as a good Samaritan. We've seen him, I think, most unusually as a Christian citizen. We end with one more role he played, fourth, a church leader. Paul demonstrated his rights, and then he waited for the magistrates to apologize. They did. They asked him to leave the city. Notice they didn't order him to go. They asked him to leave the city, and Paul honored their request. Paul lived as a subject of earthly authorities, challenging them where he had to, verse 37, and obeying them where he could, verse 40. I think there's a word about masks in there somewhere. Challenging them where you have to. Obeying them when you can. Paul had a higher calling than that of a Christian citizen, though. Look at verse 40. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Paul was an apostle, a leader of the church. And as a church leader, the moment he could leave that prison, he visited Lydia the first Philippian convert and all the believers of that church that met in her house. And I wouldn't be surprised if Paul took the jailer and his household with him. In Luke 40, in Acts verse 40, Luke says they encouraged them. Paul must have taken some time to teach them the Bible. They were about to say goodbye to the only Christian leaders they'd ever known. He must have used that time very carefully. And very wisely, he encouraged them with the word of God. He poured into them. He taught them. He served them. He fed them. He loved them. They were his sheep. And why did Paul love this church so much? Because he never forgot his last day as an unbeliever. Paul never forgot his last day as an unbeliever. Paul was no better than those magistrates who had him beaten and arrested. In fact, Paul was worse. Paul knew the entire Old Testament, backwards and forwards, and yet Paul was the one who, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, had the earliest Christians killed. He knew what it was like to be in the magistrate's shoes. On his way to persecute the church and kill even more Christians, a light from heaven flashed around him. Paul fell to the ground. And he heard a voice ask him the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this was the very first lesson in Christian theology that the Apostle Paul ever received as the murderer Saul. And it came straight from the mouth of the risen Christ. The church is Christ's body. Yes, I want America to be better I want our political leaders to make decisions that serve the citizens of Alaska and Alabama 
I want our country to live up to the ideals, which I really do think are in so many ways in accord with God's will. But what I want more than anything is what Paul demonstrates here, a love for the body of Christ, a church loving her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as she gathers with one another and tries to find a way to greet one another with a holy kiss. A church serving her Lord Jesus Christ as she seeks to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. A church worshiping her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even singing with masks on, which isn't as bad as I thought it would be. A church full of people like you and me who are absolutely, wholeheartedly, resolutely convinced of the fact that your eternal life depends upon your faith in Jesus Christ as a crucified and resurrected Savior. You may not lead the local church. I'm not an apostle. I know you're not an apostle. You may not be a pastor or an elder. But if you are a Christian, you ought to love the local church the way you see Paul loving the local church at the end of our passage. We are the people, by God's grace, for whom Christ died. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you. And Father, we admit that when we see the way you saved the most unlikely people that we would have thought to have been saved in the early church, you did it that your church might grow. Father, we trust that Paul might have been sitting in that prison cell thinking this exactly is what he did to Christians a few years prior to him wasting away under the authority of the Philippian jailer. But you saved him. You set him free. And for those of us in this room who know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you've done the same to us. And so we ask that you would help us to leave this morning committed to suffering as saints, to being good Samaritans by caring for the body as well as the soul, that we might be godly Christian citizens in a world in desperate need of salt and light, and that even if we're not church leaders, that we would lead out in loving the church purchased with the blood of Christ. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.